We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE System technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Away we go. Episode 102 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Friday, July 16th, 2021. It is the final day of my vacation week with vacation in quotation marks. Next week, we are back to a normal schedule of five shows. A new show out each weekday. By 5 a.m., no other podcast in D.C. sports, and maybe the country is doing that. And my, oh oh my, do I have a show for you on this Friday. This is what we call a loaded show. I always like to beef up a Friday show since it is the last show of the week, and people will have multiple days to listen to the show. Although I guess you have multiple days to listen to every show. But really, with a Friday show, you have multiple days because no show Saturday no show Sunday, unless it's NFL Draft Weekend, and then I do a show on Saturday, and then do another show on Sunday. But anyway, this show, this may be the beefiest of all Friday shows. If this show was a football player, it would be a big nose tackle, all right? A big, wide nose tackle. The show would be, you know, Ted Washington. The show would be Vince Wilfork. The show would be Terrence Potroast Knighton. You remember Terrence Potroast Knighton for Washington? 
in 2015. That ended up being his final NFL season. 2015 was the uh, the final course for all pot roast in the NFL. Uh, but anyway, this is a super beefed up Friday installment of the Al Galdi podcast. We will be discussing the Wizards closing in on hiring a head coach, Wes Unsell Jr. We will be discussing Bradley Beal being ruled out from playing in the Tokyo Summer Olympics due to testing positive for COVID-19. What a mess. We will be discussing the Washington football team and Brandon Sheriff. I said, Brandon Sheriff. Brandon Scherf. Yes, thank you, Commissioner. The Washington football team and Brandon Scherf, oh so predictably, not agreeing on a multi-year deal prior to Thursday's 4 p.m. Eastern deadline. We will be discussing the three biggest questions for Washington's offensive line in training camp as my position group by position group breakdown of the team continues in our countdown to training camp. We will be discussing pro football reference now having sack data from 1960 through 1981, reinstating Dexter Manley as Washington's all-time sack king, assuming that the NFL recognizes the data. We will be discussing, yes, this alleged incident between Dwayne Haskins and his wife in Las Vegas. She allegedly knocked out at least a part of one of Dwayne's teeth when she punched him after a disagreement. Uh, Also, I have for you a special guest, Nationals broadcaster Dan Colco will go in-depth on the Nats as they on Friday night begin the post-All-Star break portion of their season. Dan knows the Nats exceptionally well. He is into analytics, so he understands the modern way of talking about baseball. If you're a Nats fan, you don't want to miss our conversation. And I'll even hit on the big D.C. tennis news from Thursday, full capacity to be allowed at the City Open at Rock Creek Park Tennis Center. So yes, a jam-packed show. You see, this is why I do shows during vacation weeks with vacation in quotation marks. Things happen. My last vacation week included the Washington football team naming Tanya Snyder as co-CEO and then the outcome of the Beth Wilkinson investigation. This vacation week ended up including the Bradley Beal COVID-19 situation, the no deal between Washington and Brandon Sheriff, Juan Soto upsetting Shohei Otani in the home run derby, and plenty of other things. You see, you can't ever take a week off entirely. The arena that is DC Sports never, ever, ever shuts down, and that's okay. We would not have it any other way. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, or on Spotify. A reminder, if you have the time, and this doesn't take much time, please give the podcast a five-star rating and just write like a one-sentence review. Doing those things helps out the podcast a lot. You can always tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Email from Wendell Hicks. I have been hearing you say that you are down with the names Warhawks and Red Wolves as possible names for our beloved WFT. You also mentioned that Warriors wasn't unique. I would argue that your preferred names aren't unique either, especially given the criteria of being able to address the team as a single syllable. Yes, that's a big deal for me, that we have a means of referencing the team in a single syllabic manner. Uh, Continues Wendell. Russell Wilson ends every interview with Go Hawks, and everyone calls the Minnesota NBA team the Wolves. I wouldn't mind either name, but I thought... That was worth mentioning. 
Uh, I tell you what, Wendell, you're not wrong with what you're saying, but at least Warhawks or Red Wolves isn't already the full name of a team in the Big Four, i.e. the NFL, MLB, the NBA, and the NHL. But yes, there are flaws with every name. There is no perfect choice. That's one of the biggest difficulties with this situation. Email from Darren. Hi, Al. Hi, Darren. Uh, In light of the news about Warriors, I want to comment on your other preferred options. The NFL already has plenty of birds as team names. It has the Eagles, Falcons, Cardinals, Ravens, and Seahawks. Avions are well represented. There are also several felines, and there are equines, ursines, ovines, delphines, and bisontines, sort of. But there are no canines. One of Earth's major predator groups is unrepresented in the NFL. I feel this travesty should be rectified, and the obvious way to do so is the Washington Red Wolves. That's where my vote would go. We don't need any more birds, so Warhawks is out. Sorry. Uh, Well, Darren, you are correct. Uh, There are many bird names in the NFL. The problem with all of this, of course, again, is that there is no perfect name. Every potential name is flawed in some way. Now, for the record, I like Warhawks because one, it's a badass sounding name, and two, a Warhawk is a classic fighter aircraft, so we could honor the military. My liking of the name of Warhawks has little, if nothing, to do with the actual bird that is the Warhawk. Uh, But yes, Warhawks, if abbreviated, would be Hawks, which the Seahawks already go by. And I do also have to inject this into the conversation. A Warhawk in terms of a person is someone, right, who advocates for war. And I'm sure that there would be people offended by that. As all of you listening know, you can't please everyone. Never before has that been as true as it is now. Although, if there is someone who can please everyone... It is one of the great supporters of this podcast, John Granlin of Real Broker. You know, Jason Wright needs to call John Granlin and get his thoughts on what the name should be. And if you need or want to sell your home, you need to call John Granlin, a.k.a. John G. Because John G. is the OG of what we call commission flex. Ron Rivera has position flex. John Granlin has commission flex. Position flex. Yes, Ron, you have position flex. John G has commission flex. Not every house requires the same amount of work or money spent marketing. So why should you pay the same fees? It doesn't make sense. It's never made sense. If your house is going to sell in six minutes, don't pay 6%. Let John Granlin put a marketing plan together specific for you that will maximize your home's value and help you keep more of your hard-earned equity in your pocket. John has a menu of commission packages that you can choose from, including selling your home for free. Yes, zero commission. You heard that right. For free, some conditions do apply. But interviewing John Granlin is an absolute no-brainer. He can come by your house, give you a step-by-step plan on what to do to get top dollar, and maybe even more importantly, what not to do so you don't spend needlessly, and there is never any obligation to list or sell. Do yourself a favor and call John Granlin to sell your home guaranteed. That's right, guaranteed. He guarantees the sale of your home. Call John Granlin now, 703-537-6747. When you call, make sure you tell him that Al Galdi sent you, and make sure you tell him, hey, I want to hear more about this commission flex 
that I keep hearing about on the Al Galdi podcast. That phone number again, 703-537-6747. You can also visit John at johngsellsforfree.com. That's johngsellsforfree.com. John Grandlin, nobody will do a better job of selling your home. And remember, he is the OG of Commission Flex. Position Flex. Yes, Ron, just like Position Flex. All right, before we get to our plethora of Washington football team topics, before we get to our conversation talking Nationals with Nats broadcaster Dan Colco, we must discuss the Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, that team, our team. Oh, what a day Thursday was. So first of all, it does appear as if the Wizards search for a head coach is winding down. Multiple reports on Thursday that Denver Nuggets associate head coach Wes Unsell Jr. had emerged as the front runner for the job. This is not surprising. This was what I wanted. I told you weeks ago that he was the guy who I wanted, and it looks like he's going to end up getting the job. There's a lot to like about Wes Unsell Jr. beyond his last name. Once the hiring actually happens, I'll do a whole thing on him. But of course, because these are the Wizards, the good news, that was Wes Unsell Jr. being the likely next head coach of the team, got completely overshadowed on Thursday by something else, something far worse. The happy and shiny news item got eclipsed by a dark and gloomy news item. And the dark and gloomy news item was that Bradley Beal will miss the Tokyo Summer Olympics. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, unbelievable. So it was on Wednesday night that we had multiple reports that Beal had entered health and safety protocols at Team USA camp in Las Vegas. Okay, that was bad news, but we didn't know much. In other words, was he in health and safety protocols because he had tested positive for COVID-19? Or was he maybe in health and safety protocols only because he had been a close contact of someone with COVID-19? And even if he had COVID-19, perhaps, you know, he was asymptomatic. Perhaps he had already been fully vaccinated. Perhaps this wasn't that big of a deal, even if he had COVID-19. Well, on Thursday, whammo, just like that, we got the announcement that Beal had been ruled out for the Tokyo Summer Olympics. Now, it does certainly appear as if he has COVID-19. Bam Adebayo of the Miami Heat at a press conference on Thursday essentially confirmed that the reason for Beal entering health and safety protocols was that he had tested positive for COVID-19. Quote, a dude just got COVID, end quote. Uh, well, that's pretty straightforward, all right? Bam Adebayo telling us at a Team USA press conference on Thursday, a dude uh, just got COVID. So uh, this is not some close contact situation. This is a Beal has COVID-19 situation. Adebayo also said that he had spoken with Beal and that Beal had no symptoms. So good news there. Now, to the question of is Beal fully vaccinated, uh, the answer is we don't know. We don't know whether Beal has been fully vaccinated for COVID-19. We do know that you can be fully vaccinated for COVID-19 and still get COVID-19. That happened to Nationals pitcher 
Eric Fetty. So this notion that's out there, and I saw a good bit of it on Thursday, of, well, Beal's an idiot for not having gotten vaccinated. We don't know that he didn't get vaccinated. We have to wait and see on that. Getting vaccinated for COVID-19 doesn't guarantee you not getting COVID-19. Getting vaccinated for COVID-19 lessens the likelihood of you getting COVID-19 and lessens the severity of COVID-19 should you get it. But getting vaccinated for COVID-19 doesn't guarantee you not getting COVID-19. I will say this, though. I am interested in knowing whether Beal got vaccinated for COVID-19. Now, you you could say, hey, it's none of our business whether he got vaccinated for COVID-19. And you're right about that. It isn't any of our business. But you know what? We're all nosy. And we all like to know these things. And I am certainly not a vac shamer. I, I, in fact, hate that. I hate the vac shaming that goes on. I am pro getting vaccinated for COVID-19. I got fully vaccinated for COVID-19 months ago now, but I'm not a believer in like berating people into getting vaccinated. But with Beal, given that he was set to play in the Olympics, okay, the freaking Olympics, it would be pretty dumb of him not to have gotten vaccinated for COVID-19 unless he had a medical reason or serious scientific reason for not getting vaccinated for COVID-19. Like, I'm open-minded with this stuff. I do think you should get vaccinated, but I know some people have medical reasons for not getting vaccinated. I know some people have real hang-ups with getting vaccinated. So, you know, I'm always like, well, let me hear what the person has to say instead of, again, just vac-shaming the person into oblivion. Uh, You could argue, though, too, with Beal, it would be hypocritical for him to have not gotten vaccinated for COVID-19. You know, Beal was a big-time proponent of mask-wearing, Beal in multiple Zoom press conferences during the COVID-19 pandemic told people to wear their masks. That was a big thing with Beal. Wear your masks. He said that multiple times. Wear your masks. Okay, uh, that's fine. But on the one hand, you're lecturing people to wear masks, but then you don't even get vaccinated for COVID-19. Does that make a lot of sense to you? Because it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Again, though, we don't know whether Beal got vaccinated for COVID-19. And so here is my biggest takeaway from all of this. Only the Wizards. Only the Wizards. Only our team could have something like this happen. The damn Washington Wizards. Yeah. Take a step back for a moment. Here you had Bradley Beal, the face of the Wizards franchise, set to become the first active member of the Wizards franchise to play for Team USA in the Olympics. And his tenure with Team USA ends up being a complete disaster and ending long before the Olympics ever begin. Beal was a part of Team USA's embarrassing 0-2 start in exhibition play, a 90-87 loss to Nigeria in Las Vegas, This past Saturday night, Beal started that game but had just two points on one of seven shooting. Then the 91-83 loss to Australia in Las Vegas on Monday night. And now Beal ends up being ruled out for the Olympics due to testing positive for COVID-19. Beal started in each of Team USA's first three exhibition games. Beal had been talked up a bunch by Team USA's head coach, the San Antonio Spurs' Greg Popovich, but now Beal's tenure with Team USA in terms of playing in the Olympics is over. 
Maybe he gets a medal. Uh, if Team USA medals, we'll see. Who knows what to think at this point. But Beal won't be playing in the Tokyo Games. What a debacle. That, my friends, is so Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, exactly. Well, maybe Bradley Beal needs to have a conversation with Dr. George Verghese. Dr. Verghese would straighten things out. He is the medical director for the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. He is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. The Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland diagnoses and treats a broad range of acute and chronic skin conditions, including skin cancer. And specific to that, Dr. George Verghese and his institute offer something that's a game changer, superficial radiation therapy, or SRT. SRT is an alternative to surgical procedures for basal cell and squamous cell skin cancers. SRT is safe, effective, and non-surgical. You see, having skin cancer doesn't mean having to have surgery and the downtime and side effects, cosmetic and otherwise, that come with surgery. You have options. SRT is an option, and Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer the option of SRT, unlike many other dermatology practices in the area, and SRT is covered by most insurances. To find out more, call 301-396-3401. Make sure you tell them that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401, or visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland, nationally recognized for treating skin cancer across the Mid-Atlantic region. Well, the expected now is official. This was as predictable as the sun rising in the east. This was as predictable as a presidential election in Russia. You know, when Vladimir Putin is running for re-election, you know who's winning that thing. And my comrades, you knew what was going to happen with the Washington football team and Brendan Sheriff. The Washington football team did not sign Brendan Sheriff to a multi-year contract prior to Thursday's deadline at 4 p.m. Eastern to do so. And so he will be playing the 2021 season under the terms of a non-exclusive franchise tag tender for a second consecutive season. Washington will be paying $18.036 million to Brandon Sheriff for the 2021 season. $18.036 million, bringing his total for the last two seasons, 2020 and 2021, to $33.066 million. $33. Point zero six six million dollars over two seasons for a guard. The other one's a guard. Yes, thank you, Jay Gruden. What must Jay Gruden be thinking right now? The guy who Jay once derisively called a guard, uh, that guy now is guaranteed to have made $33.066 million over two seasons. The other one's a guard. Yes, that guy. We have had the Brandon Sheriff conversation many times before. I know I get new listeners all the time, especially this time of year as we approach training camp. So just to reset, I wanted no part of Sheriff playing for Washington 
under the terms of a second consecutive franchise tag tender. And yet that is exactly what we're going to have now. I wanted Washington this offseason to either A, sign Sheriff to a long-term deal, or B, tag him and trade him. Understand what has happened here. Sheriff played the 2020 season under the terms of a non-exclusive franchise tag tender of $15.03 million. Any player being franchise tagged for a second consecutive year is to earn a 20% raise. So franchise tagging Sheriff for a second straight year gave him this guaranteed 2021 salary of $18.036 million. Now keep in mind, the NFL ridiculously includes both tackles and guards under the same tag numbers for offensive linemen. The Washington football team on March 8th announced having placed the non-exclusive franchise tag on Sheriff for a second consecutive offseason. He, on March 12th, signed the one-year $18.036 million tender. Tagged on March 8th, signed the tender on March 12th. He could not wait to sign that tender because, like a certain former Washington quarterback, whose name we shall not say. I'm a little bit more process-oriented. Yes, that guy. Sheriff, like that guy, understands how a player being franchise-tagged in back-to-back years actually empowers the player, actually gives the player leverage. This is why I never liked Washington doing this. Washington franchise-tagging Sheriff for a second consecutive season disincentivized him from agreeing on a long-term deal this offseason because signing the franchise tag tender guaranteed him $18 million for the 2021 season and $33 million over the 2020 and 2021 seasons. And Washington franchise tagging Sheriff for a second consecutive offseason increased the likelihood of Sheriff becoming an unrestricted free agent after the 2021 season and thus increase the likelihood of him leading Washington off having been paid, again, $33 million over the 2020 and 2021 seasons. Washington now is staring right down the barrel at losing Sheriff for nothing. And don't tell me about a compensatory pick. One, the best that a comp pick can ever be is a third round pick. And that means a pick after the end of the third round, but before the fourth round. So a third round comp pick really is like a three and a half round pick. Uh, Two, there's no guarantee that Washington would get a comp pick for losing Sheriff in free agency next offseason. Comp picks are based not just on who you lose in free agency, but on who you sign in free agency. So if Sheriff signs a big money deal with another team, but Washington signs a free agent to a big money deal, the two cancel each other out and there is no comp pick to Washington for Sheriff. Additionally, I'm not a believer in this outlook of, well, Washington wins in all of this because it ends up having had Sheriff for seven years, overpaid him for the last two years, but underpaid him over the first five years. I don't see things that way. If that's so true, why doesn't every team just franchise tag first round picks in back-to-back years. Do you know how rare this is, what Washington has done with Sheriff? Sheriff is just the third offensive lineman over the last 20 seasons to receive a franchise tag in back-to-back years. The other two offensive linemen tackles in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. All-time greats, Orlando Pace and Walter Jones, each, interestingly, was tagged in each of three consecutive years. But like, that's the company that Washington has put Sheriff in and franchise tagging him in back-to-back off-seasons. The only feasible way out of this for Washington at this point is to trade Sheriff. But that's not something that Washington 
has ever seemed inclined to do, even though we have had plenty of tag and trade scenarios in recent years. Guys who have been franchise tagged and then traded in recent seasons, uh, actually a bunch of edge rushers, the Maryland product, Yannick Ngakwe in 2020, Jadevian Clowney in 2019, Frank Clark in 2019. Tag and trades do happen. Uh, I would be stunned, though, if one happened with Sheriff. None of this, by the way, has anything to do with Sheriff the player. He's a very good right guard. I've, I've never denied that. I mean, Brandon Sheriff was voted to the Associated Press's All-Pro First Team for the 2020 regular season. Washington, as many of you know, had not had an All-Pro First Team selection since a punter, Matt Turk, for the 1996 season. Sheriff was Washington's first player to be First Team All-Pro on offense or defense since linebacker Wilbur Marshall for the 1992 season. So what Sheriff did in the 2020 season was special. He finished the 2020 regular season fourth out of 43 qualified right guards in overall grade for pro football focus at 84.1. Brandon Sheriff is a very good player. That's not up for debate. The problems with paying Sheriff big money have been two things. One, his injury history. He has missed a total of 16 games a full season over the last three regular seasons. And two, his positional value. Good guards are found on the cheap all of the time. And so to me, you should almost never be in the business of paying a guard big time money. I mean, I joke about what Jay Gruden said, but there's truth in what he said. Sheriff is a guard. The other one's a guard. Yeah. Like, why do you think that Jay said that? Jay said that because quality guards can be found almost anywhere. The Kansas City Chiefs this past March paid a ton of money to sign Joe Tooney, a guard, as an unrestricted free agent. Joe Tooney was taken by the New England Patriots in the third round of the 2016 NFL Draft. One of the better guards in the NFL for years has been Andrew Norwell, now with the Jacksonville Jaguars. Andrew Norwell came into the NFL in 2014 as an undrafted free agent. That's how he came into the NFL, as a UDFA. And by the way, he came in the NFL with Ron Rivera's Carolina Panthers. Now look, uh, Washington can afford to pay Sheriff the $18-plus for this coming season. Washington has the salary cap space, but that's not the point. This is inefficient asset management. I like pretty much everything about Washington's 2021 offseason, except the Sheriff situation. And at no point this offseason did the sheriff situation feel like it was headed toward him signing a multi-year contract with Washington. This whole outcome just has felt so inevitable for months now. Ron Rivera in a Zoom press conference all the way back on April 1st said that the team had not talked with Sheriff since he signed the tender. Washington football team insider John Keim of ESPN in an installment of his John Kahn Report podcast that dropped on April 2nd said that Sheriff had, quote, turned down multiple offers, some of which would have made him the highest paid guard in the league, end quote. Kime admitted that he didn't know the structures of those contract offers from Washington. But again, Washington was throwing big money at this guy and he just wasn't interested in signing the long-term deal. Why? Because he had the leverage. He knew he could, dare I say, kirk it and just play out a second consecutive season on a franchise tag tender. Never, ever this offseason did the sheriff situation feel like it was headed toward him signing a multi-year deal. And so I do wonder about something. And that something has to do with something else that Ron Rivera said in a Zoom press conference months ago. Ron, in a Zoom presser on March 10th, said that franchise tagging sheriff 
for a second consecutive offseason, quote, was my decision and my decision alone, end quote. Ron got asked about what I talked about, how franchise tagging Sheriff for a second consecutive offseason seemingly increases the likelihood of him leaving Washington via unrestricted free agency in the 2022 offseason because Washington would not tag Sheriff for a third consecutive offseason. He would hit the open market, and a player is usually gone once he hits the open market. Here is what Ron said, again, back on March 10th. Yeah, I mean, but that's the chance that, that we're going to take. You know, he, he was an integral part of the success we had last year. And, and you know, as we go through this, um, you know, if that's the situation, set circumstances, and, you know, he continues to prove to be an integral part, we're going to have a work cut out for us. I mean, that's, that's just the way it is. That's the truth of the matter. Uh, as far as, um, you know, the, 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 the situation with the tag, it's, it's a tough deal. But, you know, if you're trying to do something and build it so that it lasts a while, sometimes you've got you got to do this. And, and, and that was my decision and my decision alone. So, you know, we'll see what happens. So how about what Ron said toward the end there? That was my decision and my decision alone. Here it is again. And that was my decision and my decision alone. Yeah, that was my decision and my decision alone. One thing that we've learned about Ron in his press conferences is that he's pretty honest. He reveals things. He gives us stuff. I think he revealed something right there. That was my decision and my decision alone. Ron's handling of the sheriff situation has never made a ton of sense to me. And look, Ron's not a dummy, okay? I'm sure he has his reasons for doing as he has done. But this whole thing to me has been perplexing. I have loved so much of what else Ron has done with our team. This is like the one situation that just hasn't made much sense. And given what Ron said back on March 10th, I wouldn't be surprised if multiple other people in football operations, say Martin Mayhew, say Marty Herney, say Rob Rogers, also don't like the way that this sheriff situation has been handled. That was my decision and my decision alone. Yeah, something to think about. Look, I'm not angry about the sheriff situation. I'm just confused more than anything, especially because uh, we went through something very similar just a few years ago. Our team is the king of franchise tagging guys in back-to-back years. I'm a little bit more process-oriented. Yes, hello, we know. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
All right, let's get to it. Our countdown to Washington football team training camp because, remember, it is the final countdown. It's the final countdown. Yes, that's right. It is the final countdown. Washington football team training camp will begin on Tuesday, July 27th in Richmond. will take place in Richmond through July 31st. Then we'll move to the team facility in Ashburn. And so I am giving to you a position group by position group breakdown of the team heading into training camp. We go in-depth on one position group each show. The three biggest questions for the position group for training camp, excluding injury, excluding does everyone stay healthy? That's a question for every position group. And these are questions for training camp, questions to which we'll have answers by the end of training camp, not questions for the upcoming season, questions for camp. Monday show, episode 100, I talk defensive line. Wednesday show, episode 101, I talk tight end. And on this episode 102, we now talk offensive line. And with the offensive line, we have multiple major position battles. We know that Brandon Sheriff is the starting right guard on his lovely non-exclusive franchise tag tender for a second consecutive season. We know that Chase Roulier is a starting center. We think we know that Charles Leno Jr. is a starting left tackle, but we have questions elsewhere. So here we go. Question number one for the Washington football team's offensive line in training camp. Who will win the battle for the starting right tackle spot, Samuel Cosme or Cornelius Lucas? If we assume that Charles Leno Jr. is set as a starting left tackle, and I think that that's a safe assumption. Could he wind up not being the LT1 come week one? Sure, anything's possible. If he looks horrible in training camp, if he looks horrible in the preseason, then all bets are off. But every indication is that Leno will be the starting left tackle. So if we take that as a given, then Washington's starting right tackle spot comes down to Samuel Cosme versus Cornelius Lucas. Washington wants Cosme to win the job. Ron Rivera and company, I believe, love Cosme. They spent a second round pick in the 2021 NFL draft on Cosme. They released Morgan Moses on May 20th, just five days after May 15th, a day on which Washington concluded its 2021 rookie minicamp, which of course included Cosme. It's hard not to think that Cosme's performance in rookie minicamp had nothing to do with Washington releasing Moses just a few days later off not being able to trade him. Cosme was one of many athletic freaks taken by Washington in the 2021 draft. He, per the Kentley Platy Relative Athletic Score, RAS metric, ranked as, you ready for this, the number two most athletic size-adjusted offensive tackle out of 1,119 offensive tackle prospects from 1987 through 2021. Number two out of 1,119 offensive tackle prospects from 1987 through 2021. Cosme has freakish athleticism. So the starting right tackle spot appears to be Cosme's to lose, but a few things must be kept in mind. A, there was a perception of Cosme going into the 2021 draft that he could be soft, that he gave inconsistent effort, that he didn't consistently live up to his physical gifts. Now, these are things that were said and written about Cosme. Are they true? Who knows? 
But this stuff was out there. I mean, you got to think about this. There's a reason that Samuel Cosme lasted until the second round. B, Cornelius Lucas. You know, if I'm Cornelius Lucas, I'm ticked off. This guy's become like a forgotten man with Washington's offensive line for the 2021 season. Lucas did a really nice job at left tackle for Washington as last season went on. I mentioned the likely given that Charles Leno Jr. will be Washington's starting left tackle for the upcoming season. Understand that Lucas last regular season had a better overall grade for pro football focus at left tackle than Leno had, 78.9 to 74.9. But if Leno is going to be the starting left tackle, then Lucas's only hope of starting, if everyone is healthy, is at right tackle. But Lucas played well at right tackle just two seasons ago. In fact, he did so opposite of Leno on the Chicago Bears. Lucas had a nice 2019 season for the Bears. He went from someone not necessarily expected to make the season opening 53-man roster to becoming a solid depth piece. Lucas played in all 16 games with eight starts, including starting each of the Bears' final five games at right tackle. He, over those five games for Pro Football Focus, registered an overall grade of 78.1, which is very solid. And Lucas committed zero penalties the entire 2019 season. Question number two for the Washington football team's offensive line in training camp. Who will win the battle for the starting left guard spot? Eric Flowers or Wes Schweitzer? So Eric Flowers is back. Washington in late April traded the first of the team's two seventh-round picks in the 2021 NFL Draft to the Miami Dolphins for Flowers and the penultimate pick in the 2021 Draft. Additionally, the Dolphins picked up a decent chunk of the money owed to Flowers for the 2021 season. Flowers was set to get paid $9 million in 2021, but the Dolphins and Flowers agreed to a contract restructure by which he got a $6 million signing bonus from the Dolphins. So Washington is only on the hook for $3 million in 2021. This was a no-brainer of a trade by Washington. Total no-risk, potential high-reward deal. Flowers was one of the best feel-good stories for Washington in the dreadful 2019 season in which Washington went 3-13. and So Washington initially signed Flowers in March 2019 as an unrestricted free agent, one-year contract. And Flowers went from having been a major bust as a left tackle to being a really nice left guard for Washington in that 2019 season. If you remember the specifics of Flowers' time with Washington, he actually played left tackle during Washington's 2019 offseason practices due to Washington needing Flowers to play at left tackle because so many tackles were out, and Flowers struggled. He struggled mightily as a left tackle during Washington's 2019 offseason practices, but he ended up becoming a staple for Washington at left guard in that 2019 season. Flowers in 2019 started all 16 regular season games for Washington, played on a team-high 99.57% of the team's offensive snaps. Yes, no Washington player played more on offense for Washington in the 2019 season than Eric Flowers did. Uh, He, per pro football focus, allowed just two sacks the entire 2019 season. March 2020, he signed a big-money contract with the Dolphins as an unrestricted free agent. And he wasn't very good for the Dolphins last season. There's a reason that the Dolphins basically gave Flowers away to Washington. Flowers in the 2020 regular season for the Dolphins registered an overall grade for pro football focus of just 65.9. For comparison's sake, Washington's primary left guard for the 2020 regular season, Wes Schweitzer, 
registered an overall grade per PFF of 69.0 in the 2020 regular season. So here you have Wes Schweitzer in the Cornelius Lucas spot of the veteran who provided at least somewhat unexpected solid play at a position in the 2020 season, but now is not guaranteed to even start in 2021. My friends, that is called increased depth. Uh, That is called competition. These are good things. These are healthy things. These are things to be celebrated. It would seem as if Flowers has the edge in terms of likely starter at left guard, but this to me is a battle. Flowers versus Schweitzer. And I wouldn't just assume that Eric Flowers ends up getting the job. Again, he wasn't very good for the Dolphins last season. And question number three for the Washington football team's offensive line in training camp. How good is Sadiq Charles? So the guy who could complicate all of these things that we've been talking about is Sadiq Charles. Charles Leno Jr. as a starting left tackle. Samuel Cosme or Cornelius Lucas as a starting right tackle. Eric Flowers or Wes Schweitzer as a starting left guard. The guy who can enter into any of those situations is Charles. He may be the biggest wild card for Washington's offensive line. We're still not sure if Charles is a tackle or a guard at the NFL level. He may be both. We do know that he needs to stay healthy. Charles in his 2020 rookie season played in one game with one start. He was inactive for each of Washington's first five games of the 2020 season due to calf and thigh injuries. He then started at left guard for Washington's 2019 loss at the New York Giants in week six, but he suffered a reported dislocated kneecap on the second offensive snap of the game and was done for the season. That was it. That was all we saw of Sadiq Charles in his 2020 rookie season. Washington placed him on its reserve slash injured list on October 24th. So it was very much a lost rookie season for Sadiq Charles. Washington took Charles with the first of the team's two fourth round picks in the 2020 NFL draft. Took Charles out of LSU. As you may recall, uh, Washington took Charles literally minutes after announcing that the team had traded left tackle Trent Williams to the San Francisco 49ers. So you went from dealing Trent to maybe getting Trent's ultimate replacement as Washington starting left tackle in Sadiq Charles, although clearly we're not there yet with Charles. The concern with Charles was that he served two suspensions at LSU, a one-game suspension in 2018 and a six-game suspension in 2019. But if not for the character concerns, Charles may well have been a second or third-round pick. Charles in 2019 started nine games at left tackle for an LSU offensive line that was named the Joe Moore Award winner for the top offensive line in the nation. Charles in 2019 protected the blind side for who, right? Heisman Trophy winning quarterback Joe Burrow, who had, I think, the greatest season that any player has ever had in college football. If Charles is healthy and if his head is screwed on straight, he is a starting caliber NFL offensive lineman. He has that kind of ability, but is he healthy? Is his head screwed on straight? And where exactly is he deployed by Ron Rivera and Washington's offensive line coach, John Matsko. Again, is Sadiq Charles a tackle? Is Sadiq Charles a guard? Is he, you know, a combo tackle guard? What are we looking at here? But the Sadiq Charles factor is one to be thinking about with Washington's offensive line, which I think has a chance to be really good this upcoming season. And if you haven't yet heard it, check out my conversation with Ben Rolfe, senior managing editor for Pro Football Network. He ranked Washington as having the number three offensive line in the NFL 
You can find our conversation in episode 95 of the Al Galdi podcast. Okay, so what hasn't exactly been a banner offseason for Ryan Kerrigan now is worse. His offseason started with him being told that Washington wasn't even interested in re-signing him. And this is according to Kerrigan, who has said that he was told this by Dan Snyder and Ron Rivera. Kerrigan ended up lingering on the free agent market until May 17th, when it was announced that he was signing with the Philadelphia Eagles. He signed a one-year $2.5 million deal. That's what Kerrigan got, a one-year $2.5 million contract. And now we have this. It turns out that Kerrigan isn't Washington's all-time sack king. So as you likely remember, Kerrigan in 2020 became Washington's all-time leader in regular season sacks. He, as of the end of the 2020 season, had 95.5 career regular season sacks. The man who he surpassed, Dexter Manley, had 91 career regular season sacks with Washington. But sacks did not become an official statistic until 1982. Dexter's rookie season was the 1981 season. And Pro Football Reference this past Monday, July 12th, updated its statistics to reflect sacks that were accumulated from 1960 through 1981. Pro Football Reference did this based on the incredible work of two guys, John Turney and Nick Webster. They are members of the Pro Football Researchers Association. Turney's and Webster's work was based on a whole lot of stuff. Reviews of official play-by-play accounts, watching game film, photographs, coaches' stats, and understand that the work isn't necessarily complete. Mike Lynch of Pro Football Reference announced all of this in a post on ProFootballReference.com. He noted that, quote, the work continues to this day as new information is discovered, particularly for numbers from the early 1960s. It's remarkable how thorough the research is given the many obstacles. 99% of sacks from the 1970 merger to 1981 are accounted for. From 1966 to 1969, it's closer to 95%, both AFL and NFL. 1961 to 64 is about 80% coverage, about two-thirds of sacks in 1960 are accounted for, end quote. So amazingly, we now have sack numbers from 1960 through 1981. This is a goldmine of data. You know me. I am a man of numbers. I love my stats. This was like discovering plutonium the other day when I saw this. The updated data resulted in Dexter Manley having had six sacks in his 1981 rookie season. So per pro football reference, Dexter's career regular season sack total with Washington is 97, one and a half more sacks than Ryan Kerrigan's 95.5 with Washington. Now, it is up to the NFL to officially recognize the added sacks from 1960 through 1981. We'll see if that happens, but there's no reason that that shouldn't happen, although you never know. Uh, Officially, Ryan Kerrigan is still Washington's all-time sack king. But realistically, that's no longer the case. The crown is back atop the head of Dexter Manley. But here's the deal. 
regardless of what Dexter Manley's official sack total is, he is the best pass rusher in Washington history. You know, years ago, Dexter was on the Team 980 with my guy, my dude, the DOC, Doc Walker, and they had this exchange. Is there anybody that could block you one-on-one? I haven't seen it yet, not consistently. Not consistently. Yes, not consistently. Nobody could block Dexter, at least not consistently. Not consistently. Yes, exactly. Not consistently. So Ryan Kerrigan, over 156 career regular season games with Washington, had 95.5 sacks. That works out to .612 sacks per game. Dexter Manley, over 125 career regular season games with Washington, had 97 sacks. That works out to .776 sacks per game, which is 26.8% better than Kerrigan's .612 sacks per game. Not consistently. Yes, Dexter. Now, I'll grant you that sacks are a very imperfect way of measuring how great a pass rusher is. But just from the perspective of sacks, Dexter was much better for Washington on a per-game basis than Kerrigan was. Kerrigan did produce sacks at a clip better than that of Charles Mann, so I would put Kerrigan as the number two pass rusher in Washington history. Charles had 82 sacks over 163 career regular season games for Washington from 1983 through 1993. That works out to .503 sacks per game. Kerrigan again at .612 sacks per game. Two other interesting finds, at least for me, with Pro Football Reference's updated sack data. So Pro Football Reference's updated sack data also revealed some other interesting sack numbers for Washington players. And these are guys who are way before my time, so I never got to watch these guys. But these are guys who I have read and heard about. Dyron Talbert, a defensive lineman for Washington from 1971 through 1980. It turns out that he totaled 65 and a half sacks over 142 regular season games with Washington. Talbert from 1972 through 1976 totaled 47 and a half sacks. So Dyron Talbert was a premier pass rusher during that five-season stretch, 72 through 76, 47 and a half regular season sacks. Verlin Biggs, who was an edge rusher for Washington from 1971 through 1974, it turns out that he had 15 sacks in the 1973 regular season. So it turns out that Verlin Biggs in 1973 had one of the greatest sack-producing seasons in Washington history. Additionally, we now unofficially have a new NFL single-season record for most regular season sacks. The NFL single-season record for most regular season sacks no longer is 22.5 by New York Giants edge rusher Michael Strahan in 2001. It turns out that Detroit Lions edge rusher Al Baker had 23 sacks in his 1978 rookie season. So we gain a greater appreciation for some of the great Washington pass rushers from the 1970s, i.e. the George Allen era, and we get to take a record away from a New York Giant. I call that a win as a Washington fan. In fact, as the great George Allen himself said many years ago, next week we get those goddamn Giants. Yes, next week we get those GD Giants. In fact, this week we got those GD Giants. Next week we get those goddamn Giants. Exactly, George.
All right, one more Washington football team-related item, and then we'll get to our conversation with Nationals broadcaster Dan Colco. So this Dwayne Haskins incident with his wife, have you been following this? Former Washington quarterback, current Pittsburgh Steelers quarterback, Dwayne Haskins. We on Wednesday learned that Dwayne's wife, Calabria Gondrizic Haskins, was accused of knocking out at least a part of one of Dwayne's teeth when she punched him after a disagreement at the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas on July 3rd. The Cosmopolitan is a luxury resort hotel and casino in Vegas. The arrest report was obtained by multiple media outlets. The arrest report contained the following details. A piece of a tooth of Dwayne was found on the floor of a room at the Cosmopolitan. So she may have knocked out at least a part of one of his teeth. Dwayne told Metro police officers that the couple had had verbal arguments in the past, but nothing physical. Said Dwayne to a security officer at the Cosmopolitan, quote, I want her out of my room. She hit me and cut my lip open, end quote. Calabria told police that she and Dwayne were planning to celebrate their... (laughs) Uh, sorry, their their commitment to each other by renewing their vows. The couple reportedly got married on March 19th after dating for about a year and a half. The dispute stemmed from plans for social outings. Calabria and her friends were going to a Magic Mike show. Dwayne and his friends were going to a nightclub. Instead of waiting for Calabria and her friends, Dwayne and his friends went without her and her friends. Ah, I hate when that happens. And then there was this. Calabria told investigators that she tried to stop a fight between Dwayne and one of his friends earlier in the evening. She said she had fallen to the floor during that altercation and hit the back of her head, telling police she had head and neck pain as well as bruises on her legs. Police noted that she, quote, could not remember who, if anyone, had battered her, end quote. So that last portion is particularly troubling for a lot of reasons. Uh, By the way, Calabria Gondrizic is an accomplished athlete. She played basketball at Michigan State, so she's a bit of a celebrity herself. Look, I'm not going to pretend to know the truth in all of this. I have no idea who did what. I have no idea who is in the right and who is in the wrong. My guess would be that this situation, like a lot of these types of situations, involves both parties being in the wrong to at least some extent. I would just say this, though, about our guy, Dwayne, okay? Uh, At some point, you need to decide what you want to be, okay? Do you want to have an NFL career or don't you? And if you don't, that's fine. There's no shame in that. You don't have to be an NFL player just because you had a really good season as Ohio State starting quarterback back in 2018. But if you do decide that you want to be an NFL player and you want to have an NFL career and you don't want to be remembered as a colossal bust, then garbage like what happened at the Cosmopolitan on July 3rd, whatever it was that happened, can't happen. An incident like what happened at the Cosmopolitan, whatever the truth is about that incident, can not happen. You either need to behave better 
or you need to surround yourself with people who behave better, or both. But we now have quite the list of things, don't we, with Dwayne Haskins off the field. The COVID-19 protocols violation, the weekend of Washington's game at the New York Giants last season, that was week six. The COVID-19 protocols violation that was Strippergate last December. Uh, The lack of work ethic that Dwayne displayed during his time as Washington starting quarterback last season, including reportedly showing up late to team meetings. Now this incident in Vegas, like exactly how much more stuff are we going to have with Dwayne? Exactly how many more incidents are there going to be with Dwayne? Understand, when the Washington football team on December 28th released Dwayne via waivers, he became the first first round quarterback over the last 20 years to be cut before the end of his second NFL season. The first over the last 20 years. All of the first round quarterback busts in the NFL over the last two decades, and yet not a single one of those busts got done the way that Dwayne got done. That's how bad Dwayne was on and off the field. And Dwayne did not sign some lucrative free agent contract with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Dwayne signed a reserve slash future contract with the Steelers. That's one of the lowest level contracts that a player can sign with an NFL team, a reserve slash future contract. That tells you a lot, a lot about what the market was for Dwayne Haskins as a free agent. Look, I don't really care what happens with Dwayne moving forward, but I have nothing against the guy. I do wish him well. I do hope that whatever negative things that he has going on in his life get fixed. And I do wonder, uh, bro, uh, what exactly is the light going to turn on for you? All right, the post-All-Star break portion of the national season begins on Friday night. Game one of a three-game series against the San Diego Padres at Nationals Park at 7.05. The Nats are 42-47, and fourth in the National League East, six games behind the division-leading New York Mets. And the Nats have the worst run differential in the NL East at minus 15. It has been a strange season for the Nats so far. How good are the Nats truly? What to expect from the Nats? over the final two and a half months of the regular season. Very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now, Dan Colco, broadcaster for the Nationals. You see him on Mass and Telecast of Nats Games. He'll be doing the first five games out of the break as a play-by-play man on the Mass and Telecast. You can follow Dan on Twitter, at Masson Colco. Dan, I do believe this is the first time that we have spoken. It's very nice to have you on. How are you? Yeah, uh, I'm good, Al. Good to touch base with you. I've, I've uh, long admired your work and happy to take a few minutes and, uh, and join you on the podcast. I appreciate that. So before we get to the team, you have one of the most unique jobs in D.C. sports. We've seen you do play-by-play. We've seen you serve as an analyst. But I'm just curious, when you're serving in that like normal role, usual role of dugout reporter on Masson, where exactly are you watching the games from? And what is it like having access to and seeing and hearing things that most media members, let alone fans, don't see and hear? Yeah, uh, this year is a little different from a, um, I guess you could say, like geographic standpoint in terms of where I'm, I'm stationed because uh, I've been doing the, the on-field reporting, but I've also been hosting our pre- and post-game shows on Masson as well. So I'm up in uh, on our broadcast level at Nationals Park for the pregame portion 
then I'll make my way down uh, for home games to the Camberwell next to the dugout at some point during the early innings, and I'll, I'll watch from there and contribute uh, throughout the course of the broadcast, and then do the post-game show on the field as well. So it's kind of moving all over the place and a lot of different things going on. But, yeah, I mean, that that to me, you know, I served in the, the on-field role for five years uh, in a full-time capacity. That That's the most fun part of that job, in my mind, is being so close to the action, both in terms of the on-field play where you see and, and hear things from field level that, that you wouldn't otherwise, and then being – so close to the dugout and getting to interact with players and coaches over the course of a game and joke around with guys or you know maybe get to ask someone a question uh, during a game that is you know pretty much impossible in any other role in in baseball media where you're you're further removed from it um, so that's that's a lot of fun and being able to uh, have relationships with the guys and um, communicate with them you know, before, during, and, and immediately after the game when their adrenaline is so high and they're they're so locked in is um, one of the most enjoyable parts of that role. Yeah, well, I know I speak for a lot of people when I say you do a great job, and uh, it's been a pleasure watching you over the years. With the Nats, so like I said, it's been an odd year, right? 26-35 and 35 to begin the season, then the surge, the 14 wins in 17 games, but then the nine losses in 11 games going into the break. Now, the Nats, of course, were crushed by injuries over the final few weeks of the pre-All-Star break portion of the season. When you look at this Nats team moving forward, do you think that the Nats catching fire again is just simply about the team getting healthier, or are there specific things about the Nats that do need to improve? I think health is the biggest factor, as I think it's the biggest factor in any team at any season, at any point in any season. I think if you, you know, talk to any of the thirty clubs in spring training and say, "What's the, the biggest thing that you want out of your club this year?" All of them would say health, because if if you're a contending team, if you believe in the roster that you have in place, if you're able to keep your guys on the field more than the opponents, you're going to have a much better chance of success uh, as compared to plugging in replacement level players along the way. So um, I think if you get Steven Strasburg back, if you get Kyle Schwarber back, if you get Joe Ross back and you're you're talking about a, a relatively full complement of players Mike Rizzo believed in this club when he put it together this last winter. He believed it was a 90-win team, as he does with most teams that he puts together. Sometimes you're going to win a few more games than 90. Sometimes you're going to win a few uh, fewer games than 90. But I think we've seen that when this team is healthy, they can contend with pretty much anyone. And there was that stretch where they were on fire, and they had a, a phenomenal, what, three weeks. Um, there are, though, to your point, larger issues. They, they haven't at times played clean baseball they haven't done the little things well that's a phrase that Davey loves throwing around as I'm sure you're aware uh so they need to do a better job especially when they're not healthy of moving runners of getting guys in from third base with with fewer than two outs of getting out of innings when uh to be honest they've they've got two outs and maybe nobody in scoring position a lot of times in the first half those turned into big innings for opposing teams when it's easy to minimize damage and get out of there with a zero on the board so there are things that they need to get cleaned up. They're aware of that. Um, but overall, I think if you get the, the key guys back into the fold, this team feels confident that they're going to contend and at the very least make a decent run at this thing. With the offense, with the lineup, 
again, strange year. Like Juan Soto has his great on-base percentage, only has 11 homers, although he was great from a home run hitting standpoint and the home run derby on Monday night. But like, you know, Kyle Schwarber and Josh Bell, really bad early in the season, but then Schwarber has the month of his life in June. Bell has been so much better over the last two months. Starling Castro has gone from struggling to maybe being the Nats' hottest hitter. There's a lot to digest with these guys so far. What do you make of this lineup? Is this a good Nats lineup? I think it's a good Nats lineup that has hitters in it that are relatively streaky by and large. Um, And when those streaks are lining up together and everyone's in a good place, this lineup can be ridiculously dangerous when a couple of those guys are in their their downswings at the same time it can make for uh you know a rougher patch for the team overall i think you know starlin castro's emergence over the last couple weeks has been enormous for this team because if he's going to hit sixth or somewhere around there he's going to come up with runners on base and he has to be able to get as davey calls them those cheap rbis he has to be able to use the other side of the field and whether it's smoking one of the right center field gap or whether it's hitting a four hopper to second base and driving in a run that way, he has to do that. Um, it's been tough not having Victor Robles contributing offensively this year because whether he's hitting an eighth or a ninth, you know, if he's not getting on base on a regular uh, at a good clip and if he's not driving in runs, that, you know, it's tough to have two guys back to back in your order that, that you're you're not getting too much out of uh, when you have the pitcher in there as well. So um, I think that this lineup has potential, but they need um, those guys, whether it's Schwarber, whether it's uh, Zimmerman, whether it's Bell to an extent who's been on a, a really good swing over the last couple of months. They need these hot, these hot swings to line up together, and then they're really good. Um, but when a couple guys, as I said, are slumping at the same time, especially in the bottom half of that lineup can mean that you're you're putting up some zeros and and opposing uh pitchers are turning over that lineup fairly easily you mentioned Robles you know he is excellent defensively offensively it's funny he actually has drawn some walks this year and he actually has hit some doubles this year but the power is like non-existent the slugging percentage is really bad the batting average is really bad it was just a few years ago, Victor Robles was this highly touted prospect. And actually, over his first few major league seasons, he did some things offensively. I mean, he hit 17 homers in the 2019 regular season. What do you think about his offensive struggles? And is there a way out of this? Or do we maybe have to start to accept that Robles just is not going to be a very good major league hitter? It's confounding, the, to, to be honest. The um, lack of power this year. I mean, he didn't have his first home run until a, a couple weeks ago, and he's been in the lineup on a near everyday basis. Um, so that's that's bizarre. But beyond the lack of, of homers, we're we're used to seeing this guy spray, you know, doubles from gap to gap, and really get to turn on the Jets and and be exciting to watch on the base pass. Of late, his doubles a lot of the times have been balls that he, he gets around and kind of hooks into the left field corner, which listen, a double's a double. You're not going to, you're not going to um, be too upset when Victor Robles is standing on second base, but it, it's not like he's squaring balls up. His exit velocity on fastballs is uh, bizarrely low. So I, I think there's some frustration there for Victor and, and some surprise from people in the organization. That said, I think we've by and large out, gotten a little bit jaded uh, when it comes to 
young players with a lot of promise coming up and making a near immediate impact, whether it's Soto, whether it's Acuna, whether it's Tatis, um, all of these guys. I mean, you look at even Vladimir Guerrero Jr. He came up in his first couple years in the majors were okay seasons. And everyone was like, what is wrong with this guy? He was 20, 21 years of age and people were calling him a bust. I think that that's a little unfair. Um, that we're so quick to judge young players, even if they do have some success in their first year or two, if they struggle later on. Be, being a major league hitter is one of the toughest things to do in any walk of life um, professionally. So I, I'm the type that is going to give, especially to a, a guy in his low to mid-20s, I'm going to give a guy a chance to figure it out. How, how many guys... You know, Justin Turner, how old was Justin Turner when he really became a, uh, you know, elite level major league hitter? He was, I don't know, somewhere around 27, 28 years old. And Victor Robles is significantly younger than that. So there's there's talent in there, no doubt. Uh, they, they work with him very hard and it's just a matter of, of things clicking. I know that I'm rambling here and there's a lot there's a lot to get out, but th- there's ability there and uh, I'm not going to give up on the guy just because, you know, his last year or two offensively haven't been uh, what he or the organization would expect. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. And actually, the comp I've made is Byron Buxton, who was great defensively, was a disappointment offensively, and then all of a sudden, over the last few years, has really blossomed offensively. And like you said, sometimes for some guys, it takes a while. And maybe for Robles, it takes a while. But there's too much talent within him to be this bad of a hitter. Like, I, I have a hard time believing that this is just truly who he is as a batter. Yeah, I think some of it is he's got a lot of thoughts going through his head right now, right? Like, they, they wanted him to be more selective, and understandably so. Victor was a free swinger. So he's focused on pitch selection. Um, he's tried this two-strike approach, which has worked at times in terms of, you know, seeing uh, seeing pitches better and, and drawing more walks, like you noted, um, but also is, is not... Um, allowing him to to turn on pitches the way that he would maybe ideally like to with two strikes. Um, I I think that this is still a young player that's trying to figure out how to... um, how to be a big leaguer in, in every sense of the word. We've seen... You know, him make really aggressive, smart base running plays. And then we've seen him make kind of some confusing base running plays. Uh, they're moving him around defensively. They want him to play deeper. There's there's a lot going on. And um, it's easy for us when we're sitting on our couches or we're sitting in the broadcast booth to, to say, well, just make the adjustment, you know, learn, figure it out. But uh, it, it's it's not that easy, especially for a young player, one that's not from this country and is you know trying to learn the language as he goes and get comfortable and all of these things. So there there are a lot of components to it, and I um, I think Victor has a ton of ability, and uh, I think the, the Buxton cop is a good one. And I, as I said, I'm, I'm certainly not ready to give up on Victor Robles yet. We're talking with Nationals broadcaster. Dan Colco. So the Nats under Mike Rizzo, of course, have been a starting pitching base team for years. Max Scherzer's been great. I know his final outing before the break wasn't great, but whatever. He's having an awesome year. Steven Strasburg, it's a matter of health. And then there's Patrick Corbin. The guy has an ERA of 540 of having struggled last season. What do you think that the Nats think about what has happened with Corbin over these last few seasons? And, you know, like with Robles, it's hard to believe that Corbin is this guy. Is there a path by which Corbin gets back to being the guy we all saw in 2019? 
Yeah, so the questions about Patrick Corbin coming into this season out were velocity, which we can completely throw out as the guy is, you know, sitting 92, 93, and he's popped some, you know, 95s. He might have even touched 96 at one point in the first half. Um, the velocity is not a, a question mark anymore. Um, another question, especially early in the season, was kind of, you know, can he take the ball every five days after – uh, a bizarre 2020 after uh, starting the season on the COVID IL and all that stuff. We can throw that out as well. He's been durable and has, you know, got, taken the ball in his normal turn every time out. Uh, the the issues, if you want to frame it that way with Patrick, Patrick have been fastball command, especially into right-handed hitters and the ability to really snap off a good slider uh, in the zone when he wants it and for chase when he wants it. That, that is Patrick Corbin at this point in his career. When he has those two things, he's going to be really effective on any given uh, timeout. When he lacks that fastball command and he can't make right-handed hitters uh, truly aware of that pitch and then that opens up the slider down and in, that's going to be a problem. When he's not able to uh, get chases on on that breaking ball the way that he wants to, that's going to be a problem. Because while he does have that changeup and he experimented with the cutter in, in spring training, he predominantly is a two-pitch pitcher. So um, for Patrick, it's all about fine-tuning the location on the fastball, getting ahead in counts, and then finding a way to, to have that slider locked in really the way that he wants to. It's been a little inconsistent. He would admit that. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's hard to, to watch Patrick go out there and dominate like he has a handful of times this season and pitch into the seventh inning or deeper and rack up strikeouts and, and say that it's not in there anymore because it clearly is. So it's just a matter of consistency with him. And we'll see what he and Jim Hickey are able to put together in the second half. And they're going to continue to count on Patrick Corbin to take the ball and get them deep in the ball games. Yeah, I think that's a great breakdown of where Corbin is at. The biggest bright spot for the Nats to me has been their defense. Uh, Nats are eighth in the majors in defensive run saved. For the longest while, we're top five in the majors in defensive run saved. I don't know anyone who expected this, considering that the Nats had been bad defensively for years. Uh, in the offseason, the Nats added two guys in Kyle Schwarber and Josh Bell with bad defensive track records. Are you as stunned as I am that the Nats defense has been this good and why, to you, has the defense been so good? I mean, you mentioned those two names, Al, Schwarber and Bell. And yes, everyone coming into the season was saying, can Kyle Schwarber play left field on an everyday basis? I don't know. They were saying, can Josh Bell play first base on an everyday basis? I don't know. Those were the question marks because, um, yes, Soto moving from left to right was going to be uh, you know, something new, but he's... He's played right field through the bulk of his minor league career. He's comfortable over there. Um, Starlin Castro playing third base on an everyday you know, basis. People question that, but he's—I mean—he's a pro and he played shortstop for a number of years. Putting him over at third wasn't going to be a big problem. Um, the the reason, in my mind, by and large, that the Nats have gotten uh, those defensive run saved numbers have been Schwarber and Bell, and both of them have been average, if not slightly above average defensive players in the first half. Schwarber works incredibly hard and was determined to prove to Davey Martinez that he could play left field every day. He, he really doesn't want to be viewed as a bat-only type of guy and 
whether it's his arm, whether it's his ability to, to take good routes to the ball, he did a nice job out there in the first half. Josh Bell has been phenomenal over at first base. Uh, his footwork has been worked on incredibly hard with Tim Bogart, dating back to spring training and, and running that through the season as well. I think the work ethic of those two guys and their determination to prove that they could do what people didn't think they could do has been a big factor in that. Victor Robles has also done a really nice job in center, but I agree with you. I think defensively the Nats have been impressive and and better than a lot of people expected them to be. And I put a lot of that on Schwarber and Bell, their willingness to work and the improvements that they've made uh, at their respective positions. Yeah, I give them a ton of credit because the Nats being really good defensively was not anticipated. Final question for you. You do such a great job in your broadcasting of incorporating analytics into the conversation. And I know that analytics aren't for everyone. And I know that, you know, it's like when you're doing a game, you don't want to get too wonky. But analytics really have become the language of the game. And, you know, this is how front offices view things, talk about people, etc. How do you try to strike that balance when you're doing your job of, hey, wanting to talk intelligently about the sport, but also not wanting to get too deep in the weeds when it comes to talking about the sport? Yeah, it's a good question, Al, because as much as you try and, um, you know, kind of ease into those conversations or, or not, or sprinkle them in lightly over the course of a broadcast, uh, you still get comments from people on, on social media saying, stop, you know, regurgitating so many numbers. I don't care. And there's going to be those people. Uh, I think across the board, when you're talking about broadcasts and and listenership, you're never going to find people that agree on everything. Uh, I mean, Vin Scully is renowned as one of the best broadcasters that's ever done it. And there are people that just don't like Vin Scully for some reason. (laughs) So you're you're not going to find universal acceptance of any one or any approach to broadcasting. I think when it comes to analytics, I do think that it is important to to discuss them on broadcast because they are such a huge part of the game today. I think my goal is to target specific numbers that I think are are really important or that that showcase um, specific skill sets or specific trends. And then my my job is to explain those numbers and break them down simply to even the people that that aren't aware of them or don't necessarily care about analytics. Um, Explaining why defensive runs saved is a better defensive gauge uh, than errors, I think it's important to do that. And I think that you can do it simply and uh, educate a a fan that might not, you know, they might hear defensive runs saved and roll their eyes a little bit, or they might, might, uh, you know, be be kind of close-minded to that type of a thing. I think that you can educate them. You can kind of coach them up in a sense um, and not talk down to them, but, but uh, you know, drop in key information that um, that's relevant and that can, you know, bring even some people that are not analytically minded people into a space where they're willing to accept some of those things. I, I do think it's very important in today's game. Yeah, uh, it is. And uh, it's much appreciated. I, I think it makes for a better broadcast, a more intelligent broadcast. Well, Dan, I really appreciate you coming on so much. Uh, continued success and all the best to you. Thanks, Al. Appreciate it. You as well. All right, before we call it a show, very good news on Thursday. We got the announcement that 100% capacity will be allowed for the 2021 City Open. So it was the previous Thursday, July 8th, that we got the announcement that one of the biggest stars in tennis history, right? Rafael Nadal. Rafa, 
will be playing in the 2021 City Open, which will take place from July 31st through August 8th at Rock Creek Park Tennis Center in Washington, D.C. But the announcement of Nadal being a part of the City Open came as there was a capacity limit of just 50% for this year's City Open due to guidance from the National Park Service because the tournament, right, operates at the Rock Creek Park Tennis Center. Now, the City Open did note on its website that there was the possibility of a partial or complete lifting of the capacity restriction, and we on Thursday got the official lifting of the capacity restriction. Very good news. This is a no-brainer. There's no reason you shouldn't have 100% capacity allowed at Rock Creek Park Tennis Center, especially in the year in which Rafael Nadal is going to be there. And so ultimately, the right call ends up being made. Very good to see that. And so that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. The vacation week with vacation in quotation marks is complete. Back to a normal schedule of shows starting next week. Five shows Monday through Friday out by 5 a.m. each day. Ain't no other podcast that's doing what we're doing. I will continue my position group by position group breakdown of the Washington football team next week as we're now about a week and a half away from the start of training camp. Uh, Also, keep in mind that we have the Capitals offseason about to pick up. The expansion draft for the Seattle Kraken is going to happen this coming Wednesday night. Teams protected lists for that expansion draft are due this Saturday. Going to be very interesting to see who the Caps protect. The weekend, always a good time to catch up on anything that you may have missed. Last Friday's show, episode 99, included my chat with pro football focus lead fantasy football analyst Ian Horditz on the Washington football team, including him on ranking William Jackson III as the NFL's number one shadow cornerback since 2019. Also some really good stuff from Ian on Ryan Fitzpatrick. This week, I've had a lot of fun catching up with two buddies, two pals, two former co-workers. Monday show, the monumental episode 100 featured my conversation with Kevin Sheehan talking Washington football team. Wednesday show, episode 101, had my reunion with the DOC, Doc Walker, as we talked Washington football team. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you on Monday. Is there anybody that could block you one-on-one? I haven't seen it yet, not consistently. Not consistently. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.